who are you? It's a strange way to start a sermon, I know. For some of you this morning, you may be asking me that exact same question. Who, that's not Pastor Jim. I know, I know, I know. My name is Jim Carmack. I'm community development director here at Hillcrest, and I'm honored to be here this morning. But let me ask you the question again. Who are you? For most of us, the first response or reaction would be to say your name, like I just did. You would introduce yourself. And we can learn a lot in someone's name. You may be able to pick out facts about their heritage or identity based on the name itself. Do you go by a formal first name, the name you were given at birth? Do you use your middle name or initials? Do you go by a nickname? And how'd you get that nickname? There are lots of ways we can describe ourselves at an initial meeting. And it even goes beyond that the more we get to know each other. You may talk about your profession or your title, what your job duties are. You may go further down the road to talk about your marital status or if you have kids or a large family or a small family or, again, where you're from when you were born compared to now or lots of different things and lots of ways that we can establish our identity. But how do you know what to say? How do you decide what you want to tell someone else? How do you decide what to leave out? And that can be a challenge. Where do we find our identity? We have the facade, we have the way that we want the world to see us. We practice in our photos and what we post. We make sure that we're presenting the best version of ourselves to others, but what's really at the heart of you? It can be difficult to answer that, especially in today's culture. I think the same can be said on a group level as well. What about your extended family and where they came from? How much does that play in? What about the groups that you're associated with or the clubs that you're a part of or the way you spend your free time? Can you describe, for example, what it means to be an American in 2022? That's difficult. I bet if we went outside and asked a bunch of different people in downtown Pensacola, what's it mean to be an American? We'd get 100 different answers, even on the anniversary of 9-11. And I'm not here to open up a can of political worms, I promise. My point is that it's different to a lot of people. It's hard to find the root of that identity and what we are. And what about within these walls? What about within the church? What does it mean to be a believer in Jesus Christ, to be one of his children? What is your true identity as a Christian? And we need to know the answers to these questions because identity is crucial. It really matters. I would argue that everything you think and you say and that you do throughout your entire life grows from the soil of your identity how you interact with others, how you respond to victory and to adversity, how you spend your time and your resources, how you view yourself. The fruit of your life is all rooted in your identity. So that brings us back to the question, who are you? And yes, we could give lots of answers, but the best place to find the most accurate truth is right here in the word of truth, God's word. And we can find answers to our identity throughout Scripture. But this morning, we're going to spend some time 
focusing on the identity of Israel. We're gonna continue our series through Deuteronomy where Moses is telling the Israelites who they are. Last week, if you were with us, Pastor Jim looked at Deuteronomy chapter six. We looked at covenant faithfulness and what that means. We studied the Shema, or the most essential Jewish prayer, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And those words will echo throughout Scripture, Old and New Testaments. Jesus himself will confirm those words when teaching on the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God. And this morning, we'll go one chapter over. We'll be spending our time in Deuteronomy chapter seven. Now, just as a reminder where we are in the story of Deuteronomy, Israel is about to enter the promised land after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness because of their unbelief. They had to wait for the first generation of the Exodus to die off in the wilderness. And you say, well, that sounds kind of harsh. Well, remember what God had done for his people up to this point. They were slaves in Egypt. They were being oppressed, persecuted. They were in bondage. They were not free. And God sent Moses and his brother on a rescue mission to release them from that bondage. He sent plagues, did miracles in their sight. He released them, so much so that when the Egyptians wanted them out of their land, they ended up giving them their treasures and their jewelry, saying, just take this and go. Please get out of our presence. Because they knew God was on their side. They left Egypt. They were faced with the border of the Red Sea, being chased by the Egyptian army when Pharaoh changed his mind. And God parted the waters, and they walked through as a nation to get safely to the other side. And then God defeated the Egyptian army behind them. They saw all this as a people and understood the power of God. And then they got to the land that God had promised them. And they said, no, no, we can't, we can't go in there. There are giants in the land. We, we can't overtake them. We're afraid. In fact, how about we just go back to Egypt? Let's elect a new leader and we'll all go back to bondage because that was better. At least we knew where our meals were coming from. No, the problem wasn't just with them not taking the land. The problem was, was with the perception they had of who God was and his ability to deliver on the promises. Something had to change in their perspective before they would be able to go in and take the land that was promised. Dr. Chuck Missler says it this way, it took 40 hours to get Israel out of Egypt, but it took 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. And so here we are where Moses is reminding the people of the promises of God. They needed to be encouraged. They needed to know God was with them exactly as he had promised them that he would be. They needed to be told of their identity as the people of God and that they could depend on him as they were about to engage in battles for the land that belonged to them. In other words, they needed to remember who they were, their identity. So if you'll read with me this morning, we'll be in Deuteronomy chapter seven, starting in verse six, going through 11. It should be in your notes or it will also be on the screens. It says this, 
For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statues and the rules that I command you today. Amen. So what do we learn about the identity of God's people from this text? Well, it's pretty clear early on, this is how God classifies them in verse six. He says, you are a people holy to the Lord. He has chosen you to be his treasured possession. Let's break that down just a little bit. Holy people. What does that mean? Well, we typically use the word holy when we talk about God. We talk about God being you know, perfect and, and, and being sacred, being set apart, being different than we are. And there's part of that here, but, but the use of the word holy here is kind of the idea about being a saint or being one who is designated for something the set-apart version of the word holy. God calls them to a holy purpose for his singular use, and then he explains that they are treasured because they're so valuable to him. And they are his possession because they belong to him. That's how important the nation of Israel is to the Lord. But why? Verse seven, it's not because you're more in number that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. The Bible says that they were the fewest of all people. So then why? There must be some reason, there must be something that they bring, that they present for the Lord to have chosen them, right? Look at verse eight. It's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to, to your fathers. Notice no specific reason is given for the love. God doesn't say, I love you because, I chose you because you did these things, because the Lord loves you. He chose them, he saved them, he blessed them, he led them just because he loves them. And he is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. Years ago, God made a very specific promise to a guy named Abram. Here in verse eight, it's called an oath, but a little later on, it's referred to as a covenant. See, it's a legal arrangement, and it's extremely important as to what's going on here. Quick history, back in Genesis 15, God is explaining to Abram, who will soon be known as Abraham, all that he will do. It starts with the promise of a son his very own son, and not the son that Abram and his wife Sarai would try to help God with, not the son that they would try to create through her servant, Hagar, 
but the son that would belong to a husband and a wife who were old, advanced in years, and were not able to have kids. That son would come, and it would be Abram's heir, the heir of the promise. And then God shows Abram all the stars in the night sky, and not just a few that we see around here, but the millions and billions and trillions and gazillions of stars that you could see on a clear night. And God says, see the stars, count them if you can, because your descendants will outnumber all of them. The Bible says that Abram believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. righteousness. But God goes further here than just to tell him the promises. He tells Abram to prepare a sacrifice. Go get animals and bring them to me. Remember, this was before the sacrificial system had been implemented. So God here takes a sacrifice of animals and Abram cuts them in half and he separates the animals, which all sounds strange. But then a deep sleep falls on Abram and God tells him, know for certain that your offspring will be servants in a foreign land, but that one day they will come out with great possessions and come back to this land that is now being promised to you. I'm paraphrasing that. Then God does something very interesting. He, God, appears to Abram as a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch, and he passes between the animals as he confirms the terms of the covenant with Abram. Now, we don't have time to go into all the symbolism of what's being done here, but the important thing to notice is who is contributing to the covenant. Who must provide what's being agreed upon? See, if you and I wanted to engage in a transaction, if I wanted to sell a house or you wanted to buy a car or we wanted to do some kind of business deal, we would get together, we would sit down probably with an attorney or have some form of legal document. We would go through it and we would clarify all the terms that were listed. I agree to do this, you agree to pay that. Here's what happens if we break the terms of this. We both sign it, usually in, the form of a wit- or in front of a witness, maybe with a notary or an apostille some way to prove that this is our intention, this is what we mean to do, and we agree to it together. And in biblical times, when two people wanted to make a legal arrangement like that, what we would call a contract, they would meet together and they would sever an animal and split the halves. Then they would walk together through the animal, reciting the terms of the covenant either together through or in a figure eight around the pieces. This is confirmed in Jeremiah 34, meaning that the implication being that if if we walk through this together and we agree on this and then you break the terms of the covenant, this is what's gonna happen to you. These are the penalties you're gonna face if you don't follow through with this. But here in Genesis, God is the only one that's passing between the animals. It's a one-way Covenant, it's unilateral from God to Abram. Why is that a big deal? Because it's unconditional. Abram can't fault the contract. Abram can't check out of it. These are God's promises to him and to the people to come, and they won't be broken. It's the form of grace of God. It's God promise, it's one way. And it's a foreshadowing of what Jesus would one day do on the cross. 
See, salvation comes through Christ alone. I can't add anything to it. If I try, it's blasphemy. Salvation comes in Christ alone from his act on the cross. I'm getting ahead of myself. Okay, back here to Genesis. But this is important here because the people, the people of Israel knew this already. They had been taught the promises of God. They had understood this. This is part of their heritage. It's part of their identity because God promised and they understood the value of the covenant here. And if we take a quick look back, just one chapter in Deuteronomy 6, continuing from last week where we left off, verse 10 has Moses saying this, just follow me. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give to you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord. In other words, God has promised all these things to you, and now he's delivering on that. And when you reap the rewards of those promises, don't forget the Lord, because he's the one who did it. Moses has to remind the people, don't forget the Lord. He is faithful. Moses is saying, God promises to us, when you rest in the blessings of his word, remember him. He is faithful. Okay, back to chapter seven. You are a chosen, holy, and treasured people. God loves you. He keeps his promises. That's the identity of Israel, according to God's covenant. So naturally, you say, that's great. What does the identity of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament have to do with me? Wonderful question. Okay, hope you guys are ready because I'm about to start preaching. Okay, here we go. Look with me now at Galatians chapter three, verses seven, and seven through nine. This will be in your notes or on the screen. Galatians chapter three, let me get there. Galatians chapter three, verses seven through nine. All right, it says this. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Psst, that's you and me. We're people of faith. If you have faith in Christ, we are now heirs of that promise. To use Paul's language from Romans chapter 11, we, the Gentiles, are grafted in like an olive branch to the root, the root, through faith. We are recipients of the inheritance of grace through our faith. We are adopted as children into that covenant with the Lord. Does that mean we get the promised land? Not exactly, that's complicated. But Paul clarifies in saying that God told Abraham, in you shall all nations be blessed. In choosing the nation of Israel, God set the stage for the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ, to come to earth through Israel and bless all the nations who would choose him through faith through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we now have a new identity. Our identity in Christ is promised in the word of God. All right, now, 
Go from Galatians back a little bit further. We're going to 1 Peter. I mean, 1 Peter chapter two. It's toward the end of your Bible in New Testament. 1 Peter chapter two, verses nine and 10 says this. Listen closely. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Does this sound at all familiar to you? Your ears should be tingling. It's almost identical to the words of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter seven. Peter, in this letter, is writing to the Jews of the dispersion. Yes, they are Jews. They are the people of Israel, but they are Jews who believe that Jesus is the Messiah that was promised. And therefore, by faith, we also believe Jesus is the Messiah. So we can take these promises, this identity as our own. Remember, Jesus taught that he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And he established the new covenant in his blood, but it didn't undo, it completed the law. Our identity is now and forever in Christ and his promises as the Messiah. So let's establish for a few minutes what that means to us today. Number one, you are a chosen race. The people of God, us, are a chosen race. Deuteronomy 7, Old Testament, says it this way. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you are more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you. Then we compare that to 1 Peter chapter two, New Testament, but you are a chosen race. See, it's the choosing there that really gets me, that really touches my heart. It's the choosing to be chosen by someone, to be selected. I won't bore you with illustrations of being picked on the playground, but to be chosen means something. It means you're worth it. And it's the choice element that lets you know that love is genuine. Think of a marriage relationship or a family relationship. That love is a choice. And sometimes we can get hung up on that. People are bothered by the free will element of, of God and, and why God would make things this way when he would choose to create a world with free will. Why would God create a world where evil exists? Why would God create a world where bad things happen? Why would God create a world where, where some would have the opportunity even to reject him and be cast out of his presence? Why, why? Well, it's not a simple answer. I, I, I realize it's a complicated discussion, but the foundation here is it's free will. It's free will, that's why. Because love forced is not really love. It has to be given freely. True love is a choice. And that's what makes it special, the choosing. Ephesians tells us that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. 
Does that sink in? Do you get that? God chose you before the foundation of the world. Now, I can't adequately wrap my head around everything that means. That's an outside time domain discussion. And I get that it's difficult, but God chose you and loves you. You're chosen. I am chosen. But number two, you are also a holy nation. You're a holy nation. Back in Deuteronomy, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. First Peter 2, but you are a holy nation. Again, it's not the idea of being perfect like God, of being sacred, but it's being set apart. It's being different. It's being uniquely designated for, by God for a specific purpose. We have a mission. We have specific duties for the kingdom of God, not just for our benefit, not just to bless us, but for those around us. See, we are the light of the world. We are his witnesses. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey all that I command you. But here's the best part. When we go, when we're obedient to that, we go in the authority in the name of the king. It's not my message. It's not my plan of salvation. I can't tell you how to live, but God does. It's God's plan. It's God's truth. But I go under his authority. I'm gonna tell you what the king says. It's up to you how you wanna receive it. But we are on a mission. We are set apart. Remember, this world is not our home. Sometimes that's an encouraging thought, right? This world is not our home. We are passing through. We are like servants in captivity for a time. But we will return to the land or go to the land that God has promised us. Like when God told Abram, your descendants will be servants in a foreign land, but will return to the land I have promised you. We too are in a foreign land and will one day be in the land God has promised. Not here, in heaven. We will have a new home. Philippians 3.20 says, our citizenship is in heaven. Praise the Lord. We are to be kingdom-minded because we are a holy nation. Hey, quick note. This one's free. It won't cost you anything, but I just like to share this. Um, remember we talked about Abram and, and what God did for Abram and his wife Sarai? He changed their names. He adjusted their identity. Remember we talked about how important the names are. Well, how did God do that? How did God change their names? He added a letter, a Hebrew character. We would say it, he added an H to the name. Abram to Abraham, Sarai to Sarah. It's a heh, or a breath in Hebrew. Do you wanna know the word that is used for breath in Hebrew? It's ruach. And the same Hebrew word means breath or wind or spirit. See, God changed the identity of Abraham and Sarah by adding his breath or his spirit into who they were. It's now part of their identity. I'm not building doctor on that. I just think it's a cool thing to share. Okay, number three, who else are you? You are a treasured possession. You're a treasured 
possession. Deuteronomy 7, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. 1 Peter 2, but you are a people for his own possession. Two things I want to mention here quickly. First, what does that word possession imply? What, is, what does it mean to possess something? It means you own it. It means it belongs to you. How do we own things? How do we go and get something that we want to own? We buy it. We purchase it. And once we do, we have the, the deed or the receipt or, or some type of formal letter or a covenant showing that we own something. So then if we are God's possession, how did he purchase us? Purchase us. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 says this. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. And it wasn't cheap. You were purchased by the blood of Jesus on the cross. The cost for your redemption included the Messiah enduring false testimony, illegal trials, beatings, mockings, scourging. They whipped his back until the skin tore open. They spit on the Son of God to show their disrespect. They ripped out his beard. They watched him bleed as they drove nails into his hands and feet. And they stood around and laughed when he cried out, it's finished. And he stopped breathing. No, it wasn't easy. It cost a lot. It cost a lot to purchase you. That's why if you are a follower of Christ, you are not your own. You belong to him. You were purchased, therefore glorify God with your body as an act of worship to him, the one who paid for you. The second thing I wanna point out is not just that you are God's possession, we can have lots of possessions, but some mean more than others. Scripture says you are God's treasured possession. You are valuable to the Lord. You are not just another thing to keep track of or to discard or throw out the window when you're done with it. You are valuable and you are wanted. You are special. So what do we do with things that are valuable? We guard them. We protect them. We make sure that those things, that those people who are valuable to us are secure, are safe. And there is no more secure place to be than in the palm of Jesus. John 10, Jesus says, no one can snatch them out of my hand. We are secure in that grip. Pastor Jim describes it this way, you're in the palm of the hand of Jesus, closed tightly and no one can snatch you out. But even more, the hand of God then covers the hand of Jesus. You are doubly secure in your identity through Christ. You cannot lose that. Number four, you are a royal priesthood. First Peter chapter two, 
You yourselves are being built up to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. First Peter 2, but you are a royal priesthood. If you're paying close attention, you're saying, wait a minute, hold, you didn't give us a Deuteronomy verse, you're right. There is no comparable verse in the passage in Deuteronomy. Why? Why didn't Moses call the people of Israel a holy priesthood? Why? Because they had a priesthood. The people of Israel had priests. The priests were the ones who had to intercede for the people. They were responsible for offering sacrifices, for spilling the blood of animals to cover the sins of the people, they were the ones who were allowed to enter the presence of God in the temple after extremely specific rituals to cleanse them of their own sins. They were the one who could come as a mediator between God and man, although imperfectly, because they were human. So what changed, what changed? Jesus, Jesus. Yes, he is king of kings and Lord of Lords, but the scripture also teaches that Jesus is our great high priest. He's a king and priest after the order of Melchizedek, both in the same, he's king and priest. Israel had two separate entities do that. Jesus is one. His sacrifice was taken to God and accepted. Jesus is the one who makes intercession for us. The veil was torn when it was finished. And when it was finished, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father. See, in the temple in the Old Testament, there were no seats. The priest was never allowed to sit down because his work was never finished. He had to make constant intercession for the sins of the people over and over. And as he was giving the sacrifice, the people were sinning again. But when Jesus shed his blood as the perfect sacrifice. He finished and he sat down, his work complete once and for all. And we are the recipients of that mediator. Jesus is seated. First Timothy two, verse five says, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. Jesus is our high priest, and through our faith in him, we are now part of that priesthood. We are a royal priesthood through him. We call it the priesthood of the believer. It's part of our responsibility as believers. It's what we're called to do, not to give sacrifices the way the Old Testament called for, not to hear the sins of people, but to be the priesthood of Christ, to follow in his example. How? How do we do that? Romans 12, one says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We don't go and build the altar and put ourselves on it physically. We spiritually come to the Lord and say, Lord, I am yours. I give myself to you today and always. Forgive me of my sins. Wash me clean through the blood of Jesus that was paid for me and now use me as a sacrifice. I lay down my wants and desires and I choose to follow you. I give you myself this day and every day to be a sacrifice to the Lord. Not my will, Lord, but yours. 
be done. We do all that with the knowledge of our identity in him. That's what defines us. So now that you know all that, let me ask you again, who are you? Who are you? I'll tell you. 1 Peter 2, verse nine. But you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. And you are a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now that you know who you are, now that you understand, now that you have a glimpse of who you are, what are you gonna do with it? Verse 11, same scripture. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We are chosen, royal, holy, and treasured. Are you walking that way? Because when you do, it glorifies God so that others may see that and want to know what's different. Why do you act the way you do? To glorify God and bring others to him. I know it's a balance. I'm not here to rile you up and say, go out there, go out there and just, you're the best, awesomest ever. And we still have to have that balance of who we, who we are, who we are through Christ because it's his identity it's his identity that gives us claim to all those things, not our own. We make sure we point back to Christ and all he has done. I'm sure you saw on the news earlier this week that Queen Elizabeth II died at the age of 96. Now, I am not an expert on her life. I haven't read her biography and I haven't watched the TV series, so I don't know a lot about her, but I know what I've seen, especially the last few days. But let me ask you this. Do you think she carried herself differently because she was queen? Now, yes, I know she had to learn. She had to grow up into it. She became queen when she was very young. I'm sure she made mistakes. I'm sure she had ups and downs. She had triumphs and failures. She had struggles and victories. But the fact that she was royalty absolutely affected how she lived, how she behaved, and also how others saw her. You say, sure, well, she had a palace and the crown. That's okay. But if we have respect and reverence for her, for the queen, a human queen in a human kingdom, why would we think any less of our responsibilities as royalty in the kingdom of God? Why would we not walk differently? We are kings and queens, priests, royalty in the kingdom of God. It says so. Do you know what that covenant with God gives you access to? You should. Do you know what being a co-heir with Christ actually means? You should. It's in here. It's in scripture. 
God has given us the promises. It's up to us to know what they mean. And I encourage you all to find out. But I want to close with this reminder. You are all those things. You are chosen. You are royal. You are holy. And you are treasured. Why? Because God loves you. That's where you start. Deuteronomy 7, 9. Know therefore the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love to those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. For God so loved the world, God so loved you that he made a way. He gave his son, his only son, the son of the promise. as a sacrifice, so whoever believes in him would have eternal life. Believe in him because he loves you, because he died for you. And then walk in a way worthy of the calling of your identity as treasured, holy, chosen people of God.